0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real life crimes. Listener discretion is
1: advised. To
0: Welcome back, Murder Shelf bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. Okay, Murder Bookies, we have a special bonus episode for you as part of our series on Jake Anderson's Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb. We will be hearing it from the author himself, Jake Anderson, He's been kind enough to agree to spend some time with us chatting about the book, his process, and what's next. Tara and I couldn't be more thrilled. And here you are. We are introducing Mr. Jake Anderson. He is the author of Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb. And thank you very much for joining us.
1: Yay!
0: I, I think it's really cool that you did this book. I mean, that video went crazy. Everybody in the world looking at it, trying to figure out what was going on, and you were the one that did that huge
1: investigation. Yeah, the video is definitely kind of what triggered the whole thing. I mean, if it weren't for that video, it's very unlikely that the case would have kind of taken on as much like cultural obsession as it did. Yeah. Combined with poor victim's body being found in a you know, rooftop water tank, let's just add it all. All of their dimension to it, but yeah, the videotape I think added kind of this like weird visceral mystery to it that I got a, kind of obsessed with, and um, I, I know a lot of other people get through. i talked to two different body language analysts about her movements, and you know, it's not an exact science body language analysis, but it, it is interesting. It's, all, it's almost like a lie detector test, like it's. Not an exact science, and it's not admissible in court, but it still adds a little bit of, like, additional information to consider.
0: Oh, yeah. I have to say, we did do much uh, of a discussion on the body language, and I've studied a little bit on it myself. Have you ever seen Clan of the Cave Bear with Daryl Hannah?
1: <laughs> oh, sorry, I, don't, I, I certainly haven't seen it recently. brought <laughs> <laughs> it enough to me. I, I had never seen it either. Okay,
0: so they're a group of Neanderthals taken a Cro-Magnon young girl who happens to be played by Daryl Hannah, and she grows up with this, this clan of the cave bear. And they are guttural in language, but they speak using signs, basically. And the sign for, you know, woman, submit, we're going to have sex, is this kind of
1: gesture. And I swear it looks like she's doing that. She does make some very weird gestures, they were interpreted variably as hypomanic, symptoms of hypomania, which it, to me it's almost, it's most likely that's at least part of what was going on. And then also the possibility that she seemed to be sort of afraid but also a little playful. That's what both the body language animals said based on whole movements. So they think, or you know, the thought was that She's either thinking about someone that maybe is trying to court her in some way, uh, someone who's not there maybe, or maybe it's someone who is there in the hotel. It, it's hard to know. It's not an exact science. But yeah. The body language analysts they seem to think that there was some level of uh, courtship going on that was making her nervous. It's also interesting to know that there was a mirror outside that Elevator. That's right. I think part of the time she was standing out there, I think she could see herself. And I don't know about you guys, but like when I'm alone and there's a mirror nearby, I act weird too. You know, like, you know, we all look weird when we're Mm -hmm. alone. We all do strange behavior all the time, especially when we think we're alone. So to that point, I'm not even sure that her behavior was even all that strange. Um, There were parts of it that definitely were some of the movements. We're definitely mm-hmm. pretty deep, but I can assure you I've looked weirder standing around alone.
0: <laughs> I, th- I, I think mean, probably I have too. I'm sure everyone might be able to relate. I know I've been drunk, and there have been times where you
1: start to look in the mirror like after you're like, in the bathroom, you're talking to yourself and just kind of like, moving around, and you're like, that view sure. what some of it seemed like. And I was also surprised to hear those interpretations from the analysts. Was that surprising to you too to I guess hear that and not necessarily think like she was afraid but was being more or less playful and maybe intrigued by someone that she was attracted yeah. to? I definitely felt a little nervous about it because it almost starts to almost hedge into almost like victim blaming an ideology. Not not necessarily victim blaming, but it, it kind of starts to like Put some level of I don't know sexual currents under her that I'm not sure is necessary mm-hmm. that I was a little uncomfortable with. I mean to be clear, she was she was not under the influence of any mm-hmm. uh, alcohol or, or drugs or whatnot. And in terms of her behavior, yeah, there's moments where she's clearly kind of being wistful, and you know, like it's not like the whole video she's gasping in terror in the corner. Yeah. Sort of starts like that, but it evolves and she goes through a number of different behavioral phases. And it just adds to the kind of ominousness of the whole thing. I don't know. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to determine an absolute answer of what happened, but someday I will.
0: Well, I think if you didn't, I'm not sure anybody's going to, but we can hope. We can certainly hope. That reminds me of something. Yeah, when getting into what the condition was of her body and the analysis and all, that you were concerned that they had not done a rape kit. But then you find out that they did do a rape kit. They just right. didn't bother to process it. Right. What the hell?
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, that's uh, very common. Um, there's a huge like backlog of, of rape kits in this country. I mean, even... If they bother to conduct one, which is even more rare, a lot of times they don't get processed, and so that's what happened here. Is the uh, one, well, one of two LAPD officials that were actually willing to talk to me on the record. One of them confirmed that they did do a rape kit, or they did gather the evidence that would be needed to process a rape kit. Yes. Which. I don't know. Yeah, I think in a case of this magnitude, I think it's ridiculous. Especially when, uh, well, when anyone, but uh, much less a young woman, is found naked and dead I, I under such that. bizarre circumstances. But this was part of just negligence uh, all around. You know, whether there was an actual cover-up or whether they just botched the case. You know, they didn't confer with their in-house psychology unit about bipolar disorder. You know, I spend a lot of time you know, talking about how this was the same week that the Chris Dorner man Exactly, yeah. I really do think they were just overwhelmed, which is not to provide them with an excuse, because there certainly isn't one. And um, I really do think that they just straight up watched this, this case all around.
0: Certainly on of that,
1: for sure.
0: <sighs> I'm sorry that Chris Dorner was running around and was such a threat at the time, but... You have someone who has died under rather bizarre circumstances. You know, don't drop the ball right now, and they certainly seem to.
1: There's just so little information. It's almost mind-boggling how uh, we don't know whether anyone in the hotel was interviewed by the police. We don't know whether, I mean, the only information we got from management or any of the employees came through the civil depositions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's just part and parcel of just, like, I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with with police departments in general, specifically LAPD Mm -hmm. at that time. Basically, like, a a pretty high-ranking either supervisor or sergeant. Someone basically came out and blew the whistle and said that LAPD was kind of systematically under-reporting violent crimes at the time they were trying to make it seem like crime was getting better under their watch or i don't know if that was the movie but that would make sense so you know i don't know it kind of makes there's a pattern there if they're not fully looking into the homicide element of it it. and oh it just so happens oh systematically not taking you know violent crime seriously yeah it's an accident I actually remember rereading that part last night, and it was, I think, in 2014 or 2016, or maybe both years, where they were misclassifying and underreporting violent crime, and then at some point, like, aggravated assaults or something like that, but were being reported at 10% less, oh. which is shocking. Yeah. But, I mean, L.A., there's a lot going on in L.A., I can only imagine just why they were trying to do that and how it actually seems from their point of view, too. The thing I really wanted more than anything was to try and interview the family. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I totally understand why they wouldn't want to talk to anyone. You know, they went through this horrible tragedy, which is, I honestly can't comprehend it. No. And on top of that, they had it kind of turned into this spectacle. I can't imagine what they went through. If I were them, I would have been saying, "I was like, I'm not talking to any of you guys. Screw this!" You know. That said, it would have been very interesting to hear some of the conversations they had with the police. Oh would yeah, incredibly illuminating. Mm-hmm. I know someone. I know some big shot director. They, I know that he's doing a series on Netflix, which was something I was going to try and do, but you know. Ultimately, they they go with with the big shots for these kinds of things. But what I've heard is that I think they've got a couple of interesting interviews. I don't. I know they're trying to get the family. I don't know if they will do it. But um, I'll, I'll be definitely very intrigued if, if they get an interview with the family because I think that would be illuminating. The family is going to know. They're going to. I mean, well, they're going to know how suspicious this is.
0: Yeah. I think they will. They'll at least have more insight, or some insight, or a different insight.
1: Well, have a gut feeling.
0: Oh, for sure. We always and say, trust your gut. That's kind of our little hashtag. Which, it's not all that creative, but it rings true just about every time. And with the amount of background that you give about
1: web sleuthing and how it was started, and one of the ones that consistently sticks in my mind is the guy you called Mark. And just how he gives our web thing a bad name. <laughs> just see it your face right now. Um, so, so just to clarify for anyone who's not certain what you're talking about, Mark is a guy who uh, I saw on a couple of forums who basically sounded coherent, sounded you know, like he was like, I have information that both the family and the police are going to want to see contact me, and so I contacted him. He said he had solved, like, ten cases. His investigative method is essentially zooming in on the video and interpreting in the pixels uh, outlines of shadows and demons and imaginary people he says are there. I won't even go into how uh, it's even more absurd than that, but I I don't want to give that much more time to it. (laughs) When I accidentally called him again, thinking it was someone else, and so the update I have to that is he called me like literally last week. Oh my god! And it happened again. He he, he called me and I was he was like, "Hey, it's Mark. Uh, we spoke," and immediately I was just like, "Oh my god!" And he said, "Look, you know, I heard some of your interviews where you were you mentioned my name, and look, I know you were kind of making fun of me, but I really do think you need to take this more seriously." And, um, you know, I was as polite as I could be and told him I would, you know, I gave him my email, I and mean, then I guess he didn't write it down. So when he got off, he tried to call me again and said, again, wrote my email down. I don't know. It's, it's, I, it's kind of part of a larger trend I'm seeing. In the book, I talk about something called illusory pattern perception. Mm-hmm. It's uh, kind of the phenomenon apophenia where you see faces in natural chaos, like in static and whatnot. And I think it applies to not just faces and static, but also um, the kind of uh, like conspiracy slash synchronicities we're seeing all across the place right now, from political conspiracy theories, all kinds of things. I think people are, are finding pattern. People naturally, I think, are scared of, of chaos. Oh, I agree. the natural just horror that is the chaos of the universe, and so I think we have some built-in evolutionary mechanism that wants to find order, and I think this is just an example of that, and I don't want to, like, cast too many aspersions on people personally, but I do think for sure that when we're talking about trying to forge a a decentralized movement of web websites who will be taken seriously by police, it's certainly not helping anything to have someone out there calling the families, calling the detectives, talking about demons and shadow figures and whatnot. You know, it just doesn't help.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, I was hoping you were going to say no, I hadn't heard from him. So I'm <laughs> really sorry to hear that it continues to be a, an ongoing situation.
1: <sighs> uh, the only really new thing else besides that is... Uh, A woman who was longtime friends of general manager Amy Price, she sent me an email, and she said, hey, can we talk? I messaged Amy Price about your book, and I actually got kind of nervous. I was like, oh my god, what is this? Is this someone who's going to be, you know, suing me for libel or something, even though I haven't said anything libelous, but... And it turns out that she had hung out with A. Tyson, that when she heard about my book, she seemed to get a little bit strange or contemplative uh, quiet, and that she seemed to have more that she wanted to say. And I've also heard a rumor that that same production I was just talking about in the Netflix, that they got an interview with her. I don't expect her to reveal anything in it uh, because she would literally be purging herself if, if she did. Right. But that's the only new thing I can come up with right now, or the, the only thing that's new to the case. At least no other footage has ever been revealed. Oh, no, no. Definitely not, yeah. I'm sure there was other surveillance footage from that night, but... You know, we don't know. Uh, Part of me thinks that maybe there's footage that was very unflattering to Lisa that they, you know, when they realized how badly the footage they put out was handled, as bad as that stigmatized her, maybe there was other footage and they were like, okay, well, we're not going to do that again. Or maybe the family asked them not to do that again. Who knows? I mean, there's no way, there's no other surveillance footage of her in the hotel. Yeah, hotel yeah.
0: that size, one camera yeah. was working, that's yeah. it, during the whole time she was there. I mean, yeah. that yeah. didn't ring true. Yeah. So, tell me, what's next? And and how are you? I want to know how you're doing, too. Yeah. <laughs> Your story became a big part of the book, too, so never mind, Alisa, yeah. I am yeah. very interested in how you're
1: doing. I, I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely kind of put myself out there. I. I felt like since I was going to be writing about someone else's personal problems, that I, I felt like a responsibility to put myself out there to you know, talk about my own struggles with depression and, you know, issues like that. And um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely something that generally that needs to be talked about more. Totally agree. And especially as it pertains to crime. I think it's a necessity that we start getting more realistic about it. Uh, mental health, um, but generally speaking, I'm good right now. You know, besides the, the you know, claustrophobia of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm just trying to reboot my efforts and get better as a, as a journalist and look into some new cases. I was living in Albuquerque for uh, a little while, and there's a case there called the West Mesa Murders. And this was basically Albuquerque's first serial killer. And they found, uh, basically, someone murdered a bunch of sex workers and buried them in Albuquerque. And the police didn't take it seriously because police don't take crimes against sex workers seriously, especially yeah. people of color. Yeah, sadly. And so I... I was digging into that pretty hard, actually. I interviewed like the, the the new surgeon of sex crimes in Albuquerque, who seems to be trying to turn things around there, and I desperately want to write a longer piece about this case. I've interviewed some family members. you know, I think I was trying to figure out how to piece it together. Um, there's a few other cases I'm working on. I definitely want to write something that's not so personal next time. <laughs> Or my next thing, I, I kind of want to, uh, you know, do a little slightly more traditional true crime format, because I get it. I've heard, I've seen review. I mean, a lot of people love the book, but I've seen all the reviews. I know that some people were really turned off by how much I talk about myself and that whatnot. Uh, my intention is always to bring kind of a new, you know, element to true crime, a new angle to it. But um, I might have gotten a little carried away. <laughs> But uh, you know, you live and you, learn, you grow and that's what I'm trying to do right now, is just get better. I think you were incredibly brave to do that. I think so too. And
0: I'm yeah. sure it was probably a
1: little yeah. cathartic as well. Yeah, what
0: should yeah. Yeah, and here you're you're kind of following in her footsteps to see what happened, where she was, fifth floor, fourteenth floor, how would you get where? As you are literally Literally walking in her footsteps, dealing with the mental health issues, which I think is going way above what most journalists would do experiencing that, which is incredible. I mean, you know, there was a point where I turned around, I said to Tara, I said, do you realize that he's got this, this book contract and he's doing all this research and doing all this and said, hey, I'm going off the meds, but I got what you were trying to do. I think that was incredibly brave to do that. Mm-hmm. Risky as hell, man!
1: I'm uh, It sure it was. it's just always been something that's important to me. Uh, in, in many ways, I think I'm lucky to have started to kind of destigmatize the idea of being on the medicine starting when I was like 18. Because I think for a lot of people, it's too scary. And it is scary to tweak your brain chemistry. You know, the more and more I talk to people who have uh, just... Overwhelming depression and anxiety, with people who, in many cases, really can't even function or keep work or keep relationships. Like, I think it's it's more important to be like, honest with yourself about what you need and how to tweak things. And I'm, I'm especially glad that you guys has caught on to like, the narrative device because basically what I wanted to do was build up the whole second act of the like, book so that you thought. Climax of that part of the book was going to be discovering some big new piece of information or a ghost or something like that. But ultimately, for the, the climax of that part, was just me, you know, coming I mean, brutally to terms with you know, my own faults, if we want to call it faults or, or whatnot. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a misdirection. But certainly, there were certainly a lot of readers that hate me for it, but whatever. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I don't think so.
0: I know people who have definitely had problems with depression and they think it's weak. I'll just push through it and it's just weak. And, and I said, well, if you had strep throat, you know, would you go get an antibiotic? I like, well, yeah. I said, well, I don't get it then. Why not get medication to help you with a biological problem? Oh, well, I don't see it that way. I said, well, why not? It's a biological problem. This is not 1952. This is not 1852. You know, we're not going to walk in insane asylum and bring people through bedlam. You know, we're not going to look at the inmates. I said, we've come a long way since then. Come on now. Got to keep talking about it. We need to do a lot
1: more with mental health in this country. I've been talking to a lot of my friends who are in a true crime, and uh, there's one of them that I got really super interested in reading your book. As soon as I told her about it, I think she got the audio version. Yeah, she hasn't been able to really read. She's been going through grad school, getting her degree in uh, social work and actual being a sex therapist. And then she's also been dealing with young girls and body image issues, depression, anxiety. And She's gone through a lot of that herself. So she's coming at it from your perspective as well and also trying to lessen the stigma of mental illness. And I know that she is very active on social media and and coming to terms with some of those things and really trying to make an effort to have other people look at it in a way where it's not weird, it's normal. There's so many people who suffer from this, but she was super excited that I brought her video book to her attention. So I'm definitely going to circle back with her and see what she thought. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think that was my favorite part. It was definitely refreshing to see that. Again, you were brave in doing so, and I think it just brought a little bit more to the story, just to, just to showcase that with her, because we saw just from that video, we, it, it's rare when you really dive into like, a victim sometimes and see it from their point of view, but, but then it's also even more rare where you see a coming from an author kind of coming along in that same aspect. So... Just seeing her blog yeah. writing saying put in there too, it just kind of it really gave me a lot of extra to really understand her, understand
0: you, and then a lot of the fluff, I guess, if you would call it, around the case, just in terms of
1: conspiracy theories and ghosts. Mm-hmm. It's exciting to, to read through as well, but I think this kind of really made it more realistic to me and think about things in, in a definitely different, different manner. Well, that's, thank you. That's great. And yeah. Without her laws, I mean, it wouldn't even have been possible to to do this because, I mean, originally she was the brave one. I mean, she documented in real time probably a a significantly worse problem than than even I had. I mean, she was rendered virtually non-functional. And I just just kind of in awe of her as, as a 21-year-old being that self-aware yeah. and being that brave to, like, document that to me. It was worth memorializing that in some way, and um, I just basically didn't think anyone else was going to, I mean, I'm sure people are going to touch upon the mental illness angle and whatever they do. Like, to me, that was the, initially, that was the bigger story for me. That was originally why I started writing about case was that narrative. And then I started finding stuff out about the case that made me think, "Oh my god, what if this what actually is like a, a homicide?" You know? So, yeah, <laughs> well, I think you did a masterful job. I really do. Thank you so much. It yeah, really means
0: so much. We wouldn't have been seeking you out, <laughs> believe me. If we were a little impressed, it was okay. Yeah, right. no, it was it was terrific. I really thought it was amazing. The, the weaving of the different threads, the way you put the whole thing together in a way that made sense. Just that, taking all of that, and it made sense. I mean, I can't do that. You did that. That was amazing.
1: Thank you so much. That really does mean a lot to me. Right? People are, you know, you know, I definitely got a lot of bad reviews and critiques and whatnot, but... I've also gotten, like, uh, dozens upon dozens of uh, personal messages from people essentially thanking me for, for covering that part of it and, you know, shedding a light on that. So, like, you know, to me, that makes the whole thing worth it. Yeah. You know what just hit me, too, is the way you
0: described her friends that, you know, she felt they kind of left her, but they may not have seen it that way. You know, again, the differing perspectives on how you're looking at that. And, I mean, that section alone is invaluable to anybody who's dealing with someone. I mean, I'm talking young people now, um, former high school teacher here. Young people who are dealing with a friend who has depression,
1: you you may
0: not be able to step into their shoes. Because you don't have any life experiences. You're, you're just a teenager yourself. I'll tell you that. If I were still teaching psychology, I would pull that out. Use that in class.
1: I really would. Yeah, for young people, it, that's definitely a major social ostracization that can go on. And I mean, teenagers, young adults are obviously already so um, confused uh, and, and, and torn in different directions by hormones and, and just changing in psychology. It's even that much harder. Oh yeah. I remember when I mean I was I'm thirty eight now. When I was twenty one, I was. Uh, you know. A mess. <laughs> i <don't know. laughs> and I was it and yeah. I was taking meds off and on for it, but there was just no it was something that I was definitely ashamed of for a long time and fortunately my family was incredibly supportive and, and it never made me feel weird about it and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, we had a, a huge Probably um, right now with uh, teen suicide and uh, non-adult depression. Yeah, it's only worse now. They're so isolated yeah. now. Right. But it's a good time to be talking about mental health. i definitely appreciative of the rest of for you know, being a spa-bottom. I don't know if I would get in trouble for recommending this book to underage kids, but I think it would actually be helpful. Well, I said that, that one section. Yeah, I probably wouldn't funny. say read the whole book. So yeah, it, there is there a true crime. I mean, when did I
0: pick up my first
1: true crime book?
0: Probably when I was, like,
1: 10. Yeah.
0: When you think about it,
1: I mean, we talk about foul play. We don't know if there is actually murder. Obviously, we have a victim here. We have a dead body and a water tank. But I think just the amount of stuff in here in terms of mental health and talking about it, I think would appeal to, I wouldn't say, like, super young kids, but teenagers. Who are interested in true crime and also looking to look into an alternate experience or see things from that perspective, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is great really praise. That would be incredible to me if, if young adults got into the book. But, um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep talking about this stuff, and I'd like to include social justice issues here in writing and whatnot. Uh, you know, i probably would to take a break from you know, being so honest about myself. Uh, but, like, there's definitely times where I, like, have, like, miniature panic attacks thinking, like, oh, my God, for the rest of my life, everyone I need is going to be able to have this reference. of uh, my problems at the same time, it's also kind of liberating. So, I don't know. <laughs> it is what it is. It's yours. I think you did a great service.
0: And screw them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You don't get it. Wait. Till you see the next book. <laughs> we'll cover that one too. <laughs> yeah. If,
1: if you decide to write that book about the West Mesa West Mesa murders, right? Yeah. Because oh, I'm all over that. that something similar, by moving in, and obviously it wouldn't be personal, really. But if you brought to light. We know that sex workers get a bad rap. But we know that there's, like, no protections for them. People of color, transgender, I mean, Jill and I talked. Like, I want to say a few times about how there should at least be protections because, I mean, this this is a job whether we like to say it or not. I mean,
0: sure. sometimes you can
1: help it, sometimes you might not be able to, or it is a fairly lucrative business in considering, like, strip clubs, legalized, things like that where it might not be Sex, but there's there's still plenty out there where a lot of people are doing it. It's just not legalized. Similar to, I guess, marijuana. You want if you want to look at it that way. But just the stigma around sex workers and the fact that they are still people despite what they do, mm-hmm. and the fact that their crime is not reviewed in any similar light to, say, I they, they don't want to get too um, in the weeds here, but like a white woman who's murdered or. Family who was murdered, or something like that. So I really like to see that. <laughs> that was exactly—I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I still want to do. In fact, my mother asks me every time I talk to her. She says, "You're not getting up on that case, are you?" But no. I mean, sex work and, and drug dealing—these uh, are essentially inner-city forms of entrepreneurship that have been outlawed by the government. Mm-hmm. Sex work is the oldest, one of the oldest—you know—careers in the world. Typically speaking, it's wealthy white men who are flushing money into the sex work trade. I mean, that's that's an angle I'm not going to get too much into here, I think there are issues surrounding sex that are incredibly important. And with drug dealing, also, you know, it it's not like drugs are being sold by corporations. Uh huh. It's the most. Harmful drugs are being sold by pharmaceutical guys, So, it's being criminalized for the more entrepreneurial urban demographics kind of to take part in that. I think that says a lot about our criminal justice system. So, yeah, you're right. That, that, that's something I really want to get into. And, yeah, you know, I don't think we have time to get too much into the too weeds on it here.
0: Hey, we're happy to chat anytime you want. You've got your own little fan club
1: right here. Yeah, I, I, I really do think <laughs> I was super into it. And also, you know, because I know this is a, a true crime book club, and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, true crime is what we're talking about here. you know the name of this killer, I, I've gotten pretty close to a woman who was running in the street sage Albuquerque. She, she started. all they found of these women and the bones. Oh right? wow. And there's uh, like satellite images that you can trace over here showing how the ground was disturbed um, across this plane so you can have kind of like, like geological erosion of servo killers limits. And there's there's a lot to this case that's still missing some pieces in terms of you know, they think that the killer might be dead, which is kind of a, a non-climactic ending And you want to see justice brought. But they think he may be dead. So anyway, there's a lot to this case. I'll stop blabbering at this point. But well, no you know, rush. We will be waiting. The West Mesa vote collector case is uh, pretty much nothing has been done on it. I mean, besides some articles. So I it's yeah, it's something I'm working on. That is going to be something that's gonna
0: drive me crazy
1: until you publish.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will you. I cannot thank you enough. I can't thank you. You have been mm-hmm. so open. Thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts and updating and I so said you've got your fangirls here.
1: <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> oh, one last clarifying question. You haven't written any letters to the California state attorney yet, have you? No. I mean, I did write it. it, (laughs) I just, yeah, I I don't think they're going to do anything. I don't think it's going to matter. But, uh, I I did write it. I, basically I talked to a friend who's also kind of an informal legal advisor. and basically saying there was pretty much a 0% chance that they're going to Take it on, and then it also there's basically just a pipeline to go through. I still might send it. I don't know. If we start getting into some thorny legal issues there when we start, you know, making claims to a state attorney general. So yeah, thank you again. No, so yeah, no, I really appreciate you guys focusing on my book. It means a lot to me, and I love the work you do. and yeah, uh, we'll talk again soon. Hopefully I'll have another book at some point. And we uh, talk again.
0: Thank you. It has been great. Hey, keep in touch, please. It's been awesome. I feel Thank like we've so bonded much. over
1: technical problems. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, this was a wonderful interview. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Uh, we're, we're, we're friends from here on out, and uh, I don't think this is the last time we, we, we've spoken. Perfect. I appreciate you. All uh, right. You guys are my new favorite people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Jake, thank you so much. You've been yes, great. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. That concludes our bonus episode. Hope you enjoyed hearing from Jake Anderson as much as we enjoyed talking together. Now back to work on our next book, A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris. Take care, Bye. murder bookies.
1: Written and produced by Tara and Jill. All rights reserved.